Competence. From the cradle to the grave, competence is a highly sought and valued quality in our culture. From toilet training to first words to the taking of our first steps, we're applauded for seeking and achieving competent independence. Schooling and education go the same way. The badges of success go to the students and the scholars who ace their exams and graduate with honours and prizes. At work, we value the specialists, the experts, the top-flight professionals and artisans who we reward with money, titles, status and promotion. For the most part, we live in a meritocracy, even though climbing the corporate ladder is easier for white, able-bodied, heterosexual men who went to the right schools and made the right connections. Our workplaces say they want well-rounded individuals, but those that really get ahead are the specialists who keep their heads down and stick to what they know. Work wants experts who are reliable and independent, efficient and effective. Bosses have no time for the amateur or the novice, and any wider learning you do should happen in your own time, on your own coin. But for most of us, working long hours in one, two or even three jobs to make ends meet, making time to cultivate other interests and capacities almost never happens. Chores, family, socialising and sleeping gobble up most of our downtime. But our store of knowledge and well-honed work competencies don't serve us so well in human affairs or the messy business of dying. Our intimate relations aren't the same as our workplace and professional dealings. Intimacy wants honesty, openness, trust and vulnerability. So when the news comes that you, your partner or a loved one has a life-limiting or a terminal disease, Professional competencies aren't much needed. What's your job then? What's called for is the raw, the unvarnished, the unrehearsed version of you. This is life nudging you towards something you've little to no experience or competence in, inviting you to some unvisited or maybe naive parts of yourself. Engaging in the messiness we may feel in the face of uncertainty and maybe the grief and the anger that arrive when people are dying is a kind of initiation, a descent into the unknown. But our culture of competence is never far away, tugging at us, ready to take over with its expert opinions and definitive advice. So when illness and dying come, it's easy to be swept aside by the tide of clinical professionalism that attends the scene in our hospitals and our hospices. For dying people and their families, losing competence is often viewed as a loss of dignity and a diminished quality of life. But losing competence is the inevitable journey of ageing, disease and death. This is the way of it, and it calls for acceptance and compassion, not expertise. But competence is heady medicine, and it says there's no need to suffer, to sweat, to struggle, or to die an undignified death. Competence says you can keep your shit together and die without dying. The mantra of competence feeds the illusion that we were always in charge, always driving the bus of life, and that we can do so right up to the end, or until the last possible moment, when maybe it's finally okay to give up without feeling we've let down the team. 
Competence says you should fight terminal illness and dying no matter what. It says being sick or dying too obviously is for schmucks and losers. That sickness and dying are private, even shameful. And come what may, you should keep up appearances for the sake of the kids and family. Dying people, says Stephen Jenkinson, are broken-hearted people who don't know how to be heartbroken. Their hearts were broken by the news of their disease and by how their citizenship in the land of the living slipped a little at a time without them having a vote on whether or how that would happen. Their hearts were broken by the treatment options offered to them and by the outcomes of those treatments. They were broken by the confusion turmoil and the quiet distance-making that befell their families, and they were broken by their own. The answer a death-phobic culture has to the broken-heartedness of dying people is less heart, less broken-heartedness. This is what sedation and antidepressants are designed for, to compromise dying people's capacity to suffer. This compromise is their great victory to ratchet down suffering by compromising someone's capacity to suffer. What's it like to live with a disease that will shorten your life? How does it feel when your strength and your stamina and your resolve to show up for duty in the land of the living starts to fade and flag? What's it like to die? No healthy living person is really qualified to answer these questions that the alternative to dying quietly and calmly and unobtrusively or to being a compliant accomplice to competent dying is a revolutionary idea in a death-phobic culture. What if dying and death were schools for life? What if we took a view that knowing and witnessing and speaking about dying and death were opportunities to learn well beforehand what these events require? Getting good at the changes that come with dying, like pain and losing control over the body, need the surrender of competence and the collapse of hope. Three years ago, I witnessed my mother dying from complications arising from a heart valve procedure. Her kidneys were failing and she was suffering immense pain from clots in her legs, despite the opioids she was being given every four hours. She knew she was dying and when she could summon her strength, we shared old stories and talked at length about how she felt about dying and her looming death. I talked about my grief and my fear and my broken-heartedness. Between us, we made a place for suffering and sorrow and a love that could see its own end. The intimacies of her dying will always be with me, but three memories stand out. Each time I was with her, she asked me to wash and wipe her face and body, to comb her hair, and to hold her gnarled hand as she rode the pain waves that bucked and rocked her body. Asking to be cared for in these intimate and personal ways was the mark of the woman. She'd never been too proud or vain to ask for help when she needed it, and it was a sign of her trust and acceptance of what was unfolding. For me, it was a privilege a treasured gift. 
Before dying became a medically shrouded and private affair, it was an occasion for people near and far to pay their respects and to do whatever needed doing. It was a messy, crowded, domestic event involving anyone who wanted to lend a hand or witness the dying of a friend or a loved one. It was the antithesis of competent dying because it was a recognition by all that the community had the dying person in its many and capable hands. There was no need for a dying person to keep up appearances. No need to say, I'm fine, I got it. No need to die without dying. A lifelong Catholic with an unshakable faith, Mum had no doubts about where she was heading. She'd abandoned all hope of averting a death, and she was running headlong towards it. This was an immense relief for me, and eased the sadness we both felt in her final days and hours. The day before she died, she opened her eyes and said, I'm turning away from the world now because I'm turning my face to God. I hope you understand, because I don't want you to feel upset or afraid. I knew then that we were no longer on the same path. In fact, she'd probably turned on to her own path much earlier when she'd said her prayers before going under the knife for the heart procedure. Sitting by her warm, lifeless body the next day, I howled in grief and gratitude for what she'd endured and shared and taught me about dying with an open heart. She'd spared us both from the curse of competency, and by abandoning hope and candidly inviting me to witness and aid her dying with all its suffering and loss, she'd led me to experience everything I felt without reserve. Her gift was to feed me a little of my own death so I'd have something to nourish me when I got there. I prayed that my grief would never leave me. I didn't want it to be fixed or mended or healed because I knew the price of getting over my sorrow would be a kind of amnesia about what it meant to be fully human. So I vowed to make a home for it, sensing that my broken-heartedness would keep me awake and maybe useful in the world. <laughs>